0: Welcome to the Science Witch Podcast, where we explore how science and witchcraft intersect, interact, and affirm one another. I'm your co-host, Ruby.
1: And I'm your co-host, Angel. And this is our 56th episode. For this episode, I am sharing an interview I did with Dr. Doug Wingate, who is the fourth licensed psilocybin therapeutic facilitator in the state of Oregon. Long-time listeners will know that I have been a psilocybin advocate for quite some time and was involved in the initiative to establish the therapeutic industry here in Oregon. And, you know, since trauma has been kind of our unofficial theme of 2023, with all of our various different discussions with Shane and Jay Allen Cross, we thought it would be a good way to close out our episodes for this year on a topic that is probably one of the only things that has been giving me hope over the past few years.
0: Aye, and it's a topic I've gotten to learn a bit more about in the past couple of years or so. For my partner's birthday last year, I got them a copy of All That the Rain Promises by David Aurora. I picked it up from Barnes & Noble because I vaguely heard it was a good resource, and also I looked at the cover and saw that this guy was in a tux and a trombone, and based off of what I, like, experienced in middle school, I absolutely believe that that person would know a lot about mushrooms.
1: Yeah, when I was taking mycology, this was one of our primers and I believe the story goes is that he was he's a musician and he was performing at a show like a concert and he saw some mushrooms and so someone got a picture of him like fresh off of the performance being very excited about mushrooms so yeah that seems to be that those two things are one of the reoccurring themes for both of us mushrooms and music I also want to dedicate this episode to the memory of Dr. Roland Griffin, who passed away this past September and was one of the most prolific and impactful researchers in the field of psychedelic medicine. His research on how psilocybin affects the brain is a lot of the reason we have a legalized psilocybin industry here in Oregon and was instrumental in bringing back the fields of inquiry out of the illicit, illegal, unregulated market into a sanctioned and documented research institutions like John Hopkins. So if you want to learn more about Griffin's work and legacy, you can check it out in the book I mentioned in this episode, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan.
0: Thank you to Dr. Griffins for your lifetime of work. And I'm sorry I didn't really learn about you until before we were recording this. Yeah, a big theme that, Angel, you had mentioned that we've been talking about more recently in our episodes is with how we cope and thrive living with trauma. And Dr. Doug Wingate talked a lot about how psilocybin can literally help us to create new and repair old neural networks. And as someone who likely has some form of CPTSD, this greatly intrigues me, and frankly, I can't wait for y'all in the audience to hear it. So without further ado, here's the discussion with Dr. Doug Wingate. All right, hello, everyone,
1: tuning in. Today, we have a special guest, and I have been really excited to talk about this because I, as some of y'all know, have been very actively involved in the legal therapeutic psilocybin industry here in Oregon, from the particularly the testing side of it. So I'm really excited today to talk to Doug about the therapeutic side of it. So Doug, why don't you first start out by introducing yourself? Some of our listeners and letting folks know your background and what brought you to this calling.
2: Sure, sure, yeah. So I'm a, a licensed suicide facilitator in Oregon. I was the, I think, fourth person to go through and and get the full licensure. My background is I'm a, a doctor of Chinese medicine. I've been practicing since 2011. So licensed acupuncturist and herbalist uh, for about 12 years or so. My clinical practice is focused on chronic neurological conditions so i work with a lot of traumatic brain injury concussion care post-stroke i'm also a, a licensed functional medicine hyperbaric medicine clinician so we integrate hyperbarics into the neuro rehab that we do in our clinic and see i think that covers most of it i worked at up at ohsu in their neurology department for for a while performing acupuncture for chronic neurological conditions up there and then yeah got my facilitation psilocybin facilitation license in late march and currently jumping through the hoops and looking at getting things rolling on a service center here in the portland area where i practice
1: yeah so I want to take a step back and contextualize this, especially for our listeners who are not in Oregon. Here in Oregon, we, in 2020, voted in a measure to allow the first, I think, in the world, therapeutic industry for psilocybin. And so what this means is the only way that you can get the psilocybin is to go through someone like you, a licensed facilitator. And... This model is different than some of the other states like California. I think it's just decriminalized. And so you can, I think, even go into different dispensaries and buy psilocybin mushrooms. But here in Oregon, we've taken the approach where it is a therapeutic model. So if you want to have psilocybin therapy, you have to go through an intake process, and then you would be administered psilocybin in a particular therapeutic setting. And depending on the dose you get, you'll either spend the night at the facility or depending on how long it takes, you will have to have a plan to be transported after. And the, the path to getting to this was a lot of meetings, a lot of coming up with these rules and regulations. I know I was on some of the subcommittees for the testing side of it, which there's a lot of unknowns in the testing side of it because there's just so much that we were not able to do after the psilocybin was classified as Schedule 1. I believe in, it was the early 70s, around the nixon administration was when they criminalized it and mm-hmm. before that point there was an entire therapeutic body of research in psilocybin and psychedelics that had to basically be forced un- underground for the last 40 years because of a large part the moral panic around psilocybin and other psychedelics, like LSD, but that these compounds have a very powerful potential to help people. And I thought maybe you could explain a little bit about why psilocybin and why is it really good for utilizing in your modality of helping people with these traumatic brain injuries?
2: So the organ model is a regulated model.. Of- Whereas yeah, everywhere else so far, other than Colorado recently passed a very similar measure where it's now going to be, they're, they're in the process of setting up all the rules and regulations for a legalized model, as opposed to the decriminalized model, where it's just kind of overlooked and there's not repercussions necessarily in the decriminalization, decriminalized model, whereas here in Oregon and then soon in Colorado... It's, it's actually legal and so there will be manufacturing proper testing of the substance yep. so that you know exactly what you're getting and that just of course increases the, the safety protocol. Now why psilocybin? Psilocybin has a very low toxicity profile. It's a very yeah. safe substance. There's a study by Dr. Nutt who took a look at various substances in terms of risk of harm to oneself as well as risk of harm to others. And on the scale, psilocybin was at the far, far lowest end of risk. And this was including non-drug substances like caffeine and certainly LSD. and ketamine. Ketamine was about halfway down that scale. And toward the, the high end, of course, you have methamphetamines and heroin and alcohol was actually the highest risk. And so why psilocybin, one, yeah it was the the passing of the measure and the advocacy here in Oregon was really a very grassroots based yeah. approach to things, and so that's where the focus was. There's a lot of clinical research being done within various universities now, Harvard and John Hopkins, and yep. um, a number of them are doing really interesting psilocybin research now showing very positive results. So a lot of those are focused on depression specifically, so in Was it 2000 let's see we passed the measure in 2020 so I think it was 2000. 18 and 19 or 17 and 18, that the the FDA approved breakthrough status for psilocybin for both treatment-resistant depression and major depressive disorder. And so those are currently in FDA phase two trials. That research is being done and conducted. And then once those finish up, then it's sort of expected that the FDA will reevaluate and decide what to do from there on a federal level. I'm being Oregon has strongly advocated for, and then in 2020 passed, uh, legislation for the legalization to make it accessible. In terms of you had asked how it applies to what I do in my clinical practice, there is very preliminary research in terms of neurological conditions. And like I said, a lot of the focus has been on depression. There's been a lot of focus on PTSD and another number of other conditions. Anorexia,
1: um, addiction.
2: All yeah, kinds yeah, of things. there's some really great evidence it's coming out in terms of psilocybin as a potential therapeutic method for addiction situations which you know it's really interesting that in order by definition a schedule 1 substance which psilocybin is and so is cannabis and the definition of schedule 1 used to include a high risk of abuse a high risk of harm and a risk of addiction and so essentially none of the, with recent research none of those are being validated the yeah. opposite is, is being shown and so there is again going back to psilocybin being really safe there's not really a toxic dose there's i mean there's limits of what an individual can go through mentally but physiologically speaking with the body it's you're not going to overdose on psilocybin your body is going to shut down from eating too much psilocybin before it actually hits any sort of toxic load like it's pounds of mushrooms it's ridiculous and that there's virtually no addiction risk as well and again that opposite is sort of being shown in that it can be an effective modality for breaking an addictive pattern and being helpful in a variety of different addiction circumstances everything from hard drugs to there's some really great smoking cessation studies out there that have shown long-term benefits significantly better than existing interventions in terms of quitting smoking so really really interesting stuff out there a lot of my personal interest in just Coming from where I'm at clinically and what I've worked with for the last 12 years or so is the neuroplasticity component that's been demonstrated with psilocybin. So there's a a huge upregulation of neuroplasticity, which is the ability for your brain to adapt and create new neural connections, Mm -hmm. as well as increases in global connection within the brain. So areas that don't necessarily normally communicate under the influence of psilocybin create this larger network of communication, which can be helpful in breaking sort of rigid mental constructs or rigid brain patterns that may be dysfunctional.
1: Right.
2: Um, Yeah. That's Um, where I kind of deep dive into (laughs) my, my neuroscience end of things.
1: um, Yeah. Yeah. A book I read right that came out right before the, I think it was actually concurrent to when we started doing the early part of the, campaign to get this legalized was Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. And he has a great analogy for this. So a lot of times um, we have what we call the default mode network in our brain, which is sort of our normal consciousness. And those of us who have experienced trauma, those of us who are depressive, every time that we have a thought in that particular type of emotion, it creates these deeper grooves into our default mode network. And so he describes it like a, a snowy hill. And so the more that you think about things that make you depressed or trigger yourself when you have PTSD, it creates these deeper grooves in the snow and an inner tube continually going down that same path. And what psilocybin does is it creates a fresh coat of snow so you can create new pathways and you your brain doesn't have to just always default to that traumatic brain pathways from the past. And that's one of the reasons why psilocybin has this incredible potential to heal so many different things, because once you change the architecture of people's brains, a lot of these eating disorders, addiction, depression, PTSD, once you change the architecture of the brain to not have this default mode network, that in Shake Things Up, it creates new brain pathways. And then it also has the ineffable connections that you make both within your brain, but also to the larger organisms of the mushrooms. And maybe this is getting a little woo and outside of the scientific practice, but I feel like psilocybin is one of those studies that you can't just be a strict materialistic science person Mm -hmm. and study this because it's just, it's, there's just so many components to it that are both spiritual as well as it's connecting us to something mysterious and bigger than ourselves. And in the times when I've, taken mushrooms and communed with the mushroom spirits. It's one of those things where they're really happy to have this mammalian brain for a little while. And they kind of come in and they're like, I want you to taste things that taste really good. And so I've, I've stopped doing mushrooms in any setting that isn't therapeutic. And that Mm -hmm. is part of my dedication to seeing that it be used in a therapeutic setting by anybody, you know, as as a model for somebody else. And eventually one day I would like to go to an actual facilitator, but, you know, we can talk about that at another point. But uh, Mm -hmm. one of the points I wanted to make about specifically psychedelics. Yes, they aren't addictive. Yes, they are not likely physically going to cause you any sort of long-term health issues. However, psychedelics have a powerful effect on your consciousness. And there recently was a mass shooter in one of the festivals out at the Gorge and mm-hmm. the news, of course, jumped on this fact that he said that he was on mushrooms. And mm-hmm. so that was something that everyone was like, oh, well, now the the psilocybin industry is going to have this black mark in its book. And I was like, actually, this affirms the psilocybin industry because the importance of set and setting. So I thought maybe you could develop mm-hmm. that a little bit and talk about that concept of set and setting and why it's so important when you are approaching using these compounds.
2: Yeah, definitely tragic event recently. And yeah, when it comes to even going back to the early, early psychedelic research, there's always an emphasis on set setting and dose, and all of those being key components in allowing for the most effective and safest situation in which psychedelics could be administered, which is why Oregon has laid out the regulated uh, approach that it has is the psilocybin for any legal psilocybin access that needs to be done within a, a licensed facility under the supervision of a licensed facilitator or to ensure that that set setting and dose is all in place so to kind of break down what each one of those is set is is the mindset of the individual going into it so that is where they're at emotionally where they're at in their life. If you're in a situation where there's a lot of instability, it may not be the best time to do psychedelic exploration. There's strong evidence that if somebody is prone to manic states or psychosis, that it's probably not appropriate to explore psychedelics. Or at least that's a big red flag in terms of really gauging where they're at and whether it might be appropriate because psychedelic use is is said physiologically it's very safe mentally cognitively emotionally it can be very destabilizing which for some people is a a real key component to healing but for other people that's destabilization can be too much and and they can feel like a, a break from reality and i know from the bit that i read about the the recent incident the shooting Was that he felt like the world was was ending. And for whatever reason, felt that that was the most appropriate action. And And he
1: was a veteran, too.
2: And he was a veteran. And I don't know that much about his, his background. So I don't know how much trauma he has. I don't know if he had any sort of psychotic or manic history. There are certain contraindications when it comes to drug use. So for instance, lithium is one of the hard no-goes. If somebody has taken lithium within 30 days, you don't do psilocybin therapy at all or any access to psilocybin. It's not recommended because it lowers threshold for epilepsy or for seizures. Yeah. So you have a higher seizure risk. So I don't know about enough about the, the guy's background. I did hear that he was a vet, but I don't know in terms of the degree of trauma, his mental state going into it. And and that's that set component. And a lot of our training as a facilitator is to sit down and it's it's laid out where psilocybin services are made up of three big components. So the first is a preparatory session. The second is the administration session. The third is integration. And that's pulled from how things have been done with the university research and has been the most supportive. So that preparatory session is sitting down with an individual, going through their history, going through their their health history, checking in with them mentally to see if it's a, a good fit for them to make sure that it might be appropriate and that there's no major red flags or contraindication. And then the administration is a separate session where they would actually come in and receive the psilocybin. And as you said, how long that is varies depending on dose. And then the integration is something that is an optional thing that we as facilitators legally have to offer and are happy to offer because it can be very important in somebody's journey in in terms of taking what that experience is and then what do you do with it how do you do something with that how do you re-regulate yourself uh, if you're pulled into a place that can be kind of destabilizing so it's got that that threefold section and that was a bit of a detour but but that uh, going back to that set component, that mindset component, that's that's really important to make sure that somebody is in a place they're really able to and be reasonable to handle that experience. Yeah. The second component of that set setting in dose is the setting component, which is which is why in Oregon, everything needs to be administered within a, a licensed service center to make sure that everything is a, a safe container for that experience. So again, you have a facilitator there, you have ready access to a restroom, you've got a nice comfortable place to go through that experience. Often, most of the time it involves some nice soothing music. It's, in most cases, we use a face cover so you don't have much visual stimuli and it allows somebody to go more internally and really process. That's not a requirement, but it's, it's pulled from a lot of the, again, the university research and it, and it tends to allow for the most effective and, and transformative type of experience. So that's setting component. And then in the third is is dose, which is how much psilocybin. So again, with the organ regulation and everything actually being tested, you know exactly where you're getting, you know exactly how much psilocybin that you're getting. So it's not administered. If, if you're doing it outside of a clinical setting, you don't really know how much psilocybin is going to be in any particular mushrooms that you may right. pick up at a festival. So right. um, and that's where really my... Heavy
1: my side of it comes in with the testing
2: yeah yeah absolutely so again going back to this this tragic event who knows how much he took right Uh, for for some people a fairly small dose can have very significant effects and then for other people larger doses are much more manageable and then again it's compounded by what sort of medications so yeah Somebody is on an SSRI, yes. um, psilocybin, it works on the serotonin receptors. It works on the serotonin 2A receptors. SSRIs work on the, the 1A receptors. So there's a little bit of difference there, but they do influence one another. Yep. And so that can play into what sort of experience the person's going to have, whether or not the dose is going to be more effective or less effective, depending on where they're, mm-hmm. what's going on in their body and their, their metabolic processes at the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then also Mm -hmm. there's another component of the species of mushrooms. So the only mushroom species that we can use in the therapeutic industry is psilocybin cubensis. They're probably the most widely (laughs) used and grown in the world, but there are other species. There's a psilocybin semantica, which I think is the the common name is Liberty Cap. And those Mm -hmm. are a lot more potent there's mm-hmm. psilocybin azurensis, which is one of the species that Paul Stamens described and that is actually native to Oregon. Again, they have much higher concentrations of psilocybin. And some of this we just kind of know from anecdotal evidence. We don't have good science behind this, which is one of the reasons I'm very interested in this aspects of it because there's just a lot of unknowns when it comes to psilocybin and psilocybin production within different mushroom species. And so, when you actually get into a facilitator session, you will only access psilocybe cubensis mushrooms that have a specific dosage, just like you would get from the cannabis industry, where you go into and you buy cannabis, it tells you how much THC, how much the other cannabinoids and then terpenes. The same thing will be in the psilocybin industry when you have your sample to, as the facilitator to give to a patient. But when you're at a festival, none of that is clear. You have no idea. And then the other part of it is there's just so much stimulation at these festivals and many, many people enjoy getting to do this casually and it's fine and, you know, they have a great time and it's all good, but there's always the risk when you're taking these mushrooms in not a controlled setting that Mm -hmm. there could be an interaction where you have what's called a bad trip and those bad trips are inevitably what causes the tragedies that people have associated with ps- psilocybin and psychedelics.
2: Yeah, yeah. So s- some steer away from the term bad trip and, and use the descriptor of a challenging experience.
1: Yeah, and, yeah, and that's, a that's a better term.
2: Debate within the, the community, but those challenging experiences can definitely come up. And, and like we had mentioned with, with this last um, event, and in the feeling that the world was ending, and then you had talked about the default mode network, which is sort of the baseline moderator of, of your brain, uh, when it's not actively engaged in something else. And it, it's also strongly correlated to one sense of ego and one sense of self. And so as that what happens under the influence of psilocybin is that that decouples, it, it changes the communication with some of the, the more Frontal executive function areas of the brain. And so it can feel like that's the experience of ego loss, ego dissolution that can happen under psychedelics. And it really can feel like the world is ending or you're losing a grasp on reality or losing your grasp on yourself. There are descriptions. People feel like they're going to die. Like they're going through this sort of death and rebirth process. And then it can be just, death of the ego which is so foreign because that's what we've experienced in our everyday lives and so when that suddenly separates and it's not there anymore it's a totally different experience and it can feel like an experience of annihilation so let's see where where was I going with all of that I, with the setting. I guess I go, going back to that setting component mm-hmm. yeah um yeah just that it, it's it's really important when, when in a vulnerable, compromised, and altered state, how much influence the setting can really have on one's experience.
1: As a licensed facilitator of psilocybin, one of the things that as somebody who has a very science background, the thing that I find about mushrooms and anything having to do with psychedelics and psychedelic experiences is it definitely blurs the line between what is science and what is spirituality. And mm-hmm. mushrooms and psilocybin definitely have the potential to open someone up into the ineffable mysteries of what it is to be alive. And so even if you are the most hardline materialistic science person and you're just doing the most rigorous research – If you involve yourself in this, inevitably, you feel there's just something deeper and almost intangible when you're doing this work. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask, when you approach this work, of course you are a professional, but do you have any spiritual philosophies or ethics or ideas that helps to inform and help you navigate this as as a licensed facilitator?
2: Yeah, I mean... So, the organ approach to facilitation is a non-directive approach, non-directive. So, what that means is that it's stated pretty explicitly, you don't necessarily steer the person that's going through a psychedelic experience or journey journey in any particular direction. You are holding a, a space in a container for their experience. And so I I put that out there first just to say that not anytime I'm working with somebody in in clinic or in a psilocybin facilitation capacity, I'm not my own spiritual approaches to things while they influence my course of action and what I do in my life and and come into play in in pretty much everything that I do. It's not being pushed on anybody or anything like that. but yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right in that psychedelic experiences and psilocybin experiences hop across that line of, of a hardline rational neuroscience and spirituality. And it, that there's a bunch of research studies coming out now using the term like an ecodelic experience or an expansive experience. And, where you feel much more connected with something beyond yourself so the ecodelic experience is an expansive sense of connection with your surrounding environment or with nature and and this has been like i said there's research studies that are are backing this up and it's been reported since psychedelic use has of course been used over the centuries and indigenous cultures and, and with the upsurge in the in the sixties when it was a lot more so there was people were reporting greater connection with nature in the world and and now that's being further verified and backed up and and so that is a, a very common experience that one feels much more spiritually or emotionally connected beyond oneself. So whether or not that be with with nature, with the environment, with other people, with with animals. All, all of those are pretty commonly reported. And so in terms of personally, uh, I draw from a, a number of different spiritual practices. I've always been fascinated by comparative religion, different religions, different faiths, beliefs, different practices. I have been heavy into Taoism since I was you know, about 12 or 13 or so. And so practice Qigong regularly to practice Taoist meditations. A lot of of heathen approaches to things naturalistic approaches to things polytheistic approaches to things all of these and help inform me and i've integrated a lot of those practices or or rituals and and those things are a part of me and so they again influence how i approach things just in in the the way that those are always in play and in terms of um, my approach and my putting some focused intent on being attentive and allowing for the most out of somebody else's experiences without again without coloring that experience for them you know everybody's going to come in with with where they're at and their own spiritual practices and approaches and those often blossom further and open up through these experiences and it's really sort of my role to allow for those things to happen yeah and if they-
1: yeah, I one of my prophets, and I always like to bring him up in these conversations, is Terrence McKenna. And Terrence McKenna yeah. talks about having a very personal relationship with the mushroom spirits, and how that they, when he would be under the influence of them, would basically download all this knowledge into his head about how it's really a way for the eco consciousness to have a conversation with our mammalian brains and in some ways advocate and emphasize to us that we are all connected. When I've had really profound psilocybin trips, there was this just overwhelming sense of, yeah, we're all in this together. The mushrooms don't want us to kill each other. The mushrooms don't want us to destroy the planet. The mushrooms don't want us to like release nuclear weapons that destroy all of the terrestrial biosphere. That is just, Something that you feel, I I guess, maybe, or not you feel, but I definitely feel when I have taken psilocybin. And it's it's almost like there's this spirit of the mushroom consciousness that when you take a very intentional connection and open yourself up to the possibilities of, well, what if this consciousness really is almost like the soul of the planet talking to us through the mechanism of, of psilocybin? Mm-hmm. And it it really is like one of those experiences that anyone you know you talk to that has a really profound trip, they take that to their death. Like I will take my experiences with psilocybin to my death because it's been just such one of those things that has profoundly impacted the way that I human. And it also mm-hmm. was a moment of okay, wow. No, this isn't just like a drug. This isn't just me taking a substance. This is me communing with something bigger and more powerful than myself that does have a noticeable impact on my biochemistry. But from just like spiritual level, it reminded me of there is more than just my own human consciousness that exists. There's this higher order ambient consciousness that I can commune with the mushrooms and that when I allow myself to be in the receptivity of it. There's just so many profound lessons and insights that it can give me.
2: Yeah, and you're definitely not all alone with that. It's a fairly common reported experience. I think John Hopkins might've done um, a paper specifically on that. It's it's a fairly common experience that people will report that the mystical experiences that they experience under the influence of psilocybin or, or serotonergic psychedelics is among the most influential experiences or one of the most spiritual experiences of their lives. Like on par with you know the birth of a child or marriage or those sorts of things. Like they it's uh, often ranked as one of those like top five life experience or life changing experiences. So that's not an uncommon experience. Uh, yeah. Report.
1: Yeah and and I think it's really important for us to have those reminders. You know, I think there's a meme going around that's the world is run by people who've never taken mushrooms and the people who've taken mushrooms know why that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, that's, it's, it's like good to have a little ego death I feel is necessary for a healthy human humility experience because it takes you out of a lot of the toxic concepts of of late-stage capitalism and being very attached to these almost harmful ideas about ourselves. I mean, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I find really fascinating that it's used as a treatment for eating disorders, right? Is because a lot of the times there's a lot of different theories about why people develop eating disorders, but it is all mixed into this idea, especially for fems and AFAB people, that your value is attached to your appearance and that in our society, thinness is considered to be of value. And so there's the when you internalize a lot of these ideas and it creates this body dysmorphia, mushrooms come in and they fuck it all up. And they're just like, nope, that doesn't matter. It's not important. That is you and your human body are fine and and good just the way you are. You don't need to like be super thin you don't need to like constantly kill yourself and starve yourself be a human being because you're a lot more valuable to us when you're healthy and you're eating and you're loving your body because those are the people that we need to help save the world (laughs) you know Yeah. yeah
2: so yeah definitely i mean a lot of what this the psychedelic experience allows for is you kind of touched on it with the the uh, mountain analogy, but the yeah. brain gets in these these rigid patterns of thinking and belief systems and structures that become self-limiting. When that's continually being reinforced or cycled around mentally, it's easy to to get in a rut of sorts. And what psilocybin or these psychedelic experiences are are allowing to happen is to step away from that for a little bit and take on a a larger perspective of things i physiologically speaking it, it inhibits some of the perceptual filter that happens that's going on throughout your daily life you're constantly filtering things out and only registering so much and it's usually things that are self-reinforcing of what your current belief model or, or model of reality is and that definitely includes rigid thinking patterns about sense of self and self worth and, and those sorts of things for sure. And so these experiences allow an opportunity to step outside of these rigid thought patterns, belief structures, and sort of, again, have this sort of bigger picture or that you can zoom out a little bit and have a, a broader look at, at things and how much be able to that's part of the, the integration portion of things is, is be able to see how that experience fits in with your previous experience and how you've been living your life and whether or not it's appropriate to maybe shift the way that you look at things and then the best way to do that
1: yeah, and the the shift is so powerful. It can even have something as strong as it and and physically addicting as alcohol. I I've read reports mm-hmm. where people who have struggled with alcoholism have had a powerful psychedelic experience where they see their alcoholism, and they're able to like visualize it as this entity outside of themselves, and then they can confront it and say, "I don't want." to be this anymore. I don't want this in inside of me anymore. And then when they come out of the trip, they can't drink alcohol anymore. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it literally yeah. changes your, your brain pathways to associate that with something that makes you sick. And then something I've, I, I think I remember reading 70% success rate for people who have psychedelic trips to be able to cure their alcoholism, and mm-hmm. that is a higher rate than you see in any other treatment. Any yeah. other?
0: You yeah,
2: know, I don't remember what that figure was. It was something like that, sixty or seventy percent, or something mm-hmm. like that, which again is significantly higher current intervention. So, right. Yeah. yeah,
1: I think the the standard model with Alcoholics Anonymous they have a very high recidivism, where people who drink and they quit through AA they they end up relapsing but in psilocybin you you don't see that as as much and that's just speaks to the powerful possibility of these compounds when they're used in this therapeutic setting and going through 2020 this was the thing that kept me going yo like this was the one thing that gave me hope for our humanity because going through the pandemic and then we had the fires in in September 2020 and it was such a bleak depressing time but Me being able to say, you know, well, if we get this, this will help so many people. It helped me keep going because it was really one of the few hopeful things that I had to look forward to when I was helping, you know, I'd come home from work and I'd cold call people in Eastern Oregon and be like, have you heard about the psilocybin initiative? And it was one of those things where I could pour myself into something that finally was giving me hope. And and the ability to see the potential for healing all the trauma, because, you know, so many people have just had traumatic experiences that debilitate their lives, especially veterans. That was a major group that advocated for this to pass was veterans is because. Many of us love veterans, we know that being in the military and being subjected to the pressures and stresses of combat, it inevitably changes people in ways that makes it caustic to their human experience at when they leave the military. and having psilocybin as a modality to help them be able to live better, fuller, richer lives and a feel more human connection was just one of the things that got me up in the morning. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And definitely thank you for that that work. And, and it's now you can see it's come to fruition. So it's hopefully got to feel pretty good.
0: Yeah, um, it does. Certainly- it feels
2: good. And, and certainly with the veteran population out, one, it's, not, it's no real surprise that they'd be uh, enthusiastic in, in, in backing this. Again, going back to my clinical practice outside of psilocybin, working with TBI and PTSD, and, and for a lot of the veteran community, those two things are compounded and they're, they're both, both in play. And so I've done you know, volunteer work with the Returning Veterans Project here in Portland that specifically advocates and tries to make accessible care for veterans. And it's definitely a, a population that yeah may may benefit. Uh, right. Not it, not surprised. Also population where they don't necessarily have a lot of accessible resources at times. So
1: Yeah. And that's yeah. Well, that's something I guess I did want to talk about as, you know, we're wrapping up here is is the quest to make this accessible. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing up my business plan for my psilocybin testing lab that I'm still working on getting investors and also folks to help with co-founders and such, because I want to build it as my own company. I don't want to be working for another company and then developing their psilocybin industry. One of the things is that you have to have an equity plan. And so part of my equity plan was we will do testing for any psilocybin that is then used for administrative sessions for veterans for free. All the testing for those sessions is for free. And Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big question. Is just how accessible is this going to be? Is it only going to be available for like rich tech bros? You can fly in from San Francisco and do a week long hot spring psilocybin retreat that costs upwards of ten thousand dollars. That's what a lot of the folks that are thinking this is some kind of gold rush are doing, right? They're they're thinking that this is going to be big money, and there is that possibility. But if it there's isn't,
2: though, and then there's a, a good portion of uh, most of the people who were in my facilitation cohort wanted to make this an accessible option for right. people right like they're they're in it because they believe that it can benefit people and and want to make that available um and then yes there's a whole corporate side and and business entities that see this as oh a uh, totally new market opening up and and capitalize on that as much as possible and definitely multiple multiple dynamics going that are happening right now Uh, in terms of how accessible it's going to be, you know, it's, it's still on my end, still crunching the numbers to see how accessible we're able to make it within the limitations of the way that it, Oregon statutes are built out. So yeah. there's one, the significant investment in the training, so the financial investment in the training, and then there's significant financial investment in the licensure fees, which are quite a bit higher than any other medical licensure. Yeah. And then there's the additional fees of, for a service center or for a manufacturing center those are ten thousand dollars a year annually yeah, yeah. and then i don't remember if the lab is the same or not yeah but all oh, the, yeah all of that gets confounded in in addition to um all of your normal head normal overhead and
1: you have to have security cameras on all yeah. of the ingresses and yeah. outgresses and then you have to have security cameras for all of your sessions i mean there's so many costs involved
2: yeah yeah so the way that that I've chosen to approach this within our service center to do the best that we can under the current conditions. And and the hope is that things will continue to evolve over the next few years. There's going to be a lot of advocacy from, uh, with the psilocybin facilitation association now. We're going to continue to advocate through the Oregon Health Authority to continue to evolve the, the statutes and the regulations to see if, if we can make it even more Accessible and see if we can chip away at some of those licensing or overhead costs and things like that. The way that I'm approaching it in my service center is allowing for group psilocybin administration. Mm-hmm. Looking at focusing on microdosing. If you're not familiar with microdosing, it's a sub hallucinogenic dose coupled with both synergistic compounds. So, so within microdosing, there's a couple different protocols that that are out there. And one of those is, is called a stain stack that, cop, that couples with niacin and lion's mane with the, the small psilocybin dose. And they work synergistically to where you get a much more significant effect than if you were to just to take those into isolation and not take them together. So pulling that in with neural care in a group setting to make it as, as affordable as possible and bring it down that cost as much as we can. I, I know that, and those, I don't have clear figures on on what we're going to be charging, but I know that some of the the costs have come out for the couple service centers that have received licensure, and they are high. And yeah. um, being on the back end of that and knowing what plays into it, I know it's not where a lot of us want it to be, and that it's not necessarily people corporations swooping in and trying to make a quick off of it so much as also people generally wanting to get this medicine or get this out to people and having to, by wanting to do it through the proper legal channels, having to navigate all of the financial barriers to even get to that point to yeah. make it accessible and make it, get it into people's hands. Yeah, yeah. And it's I mean- definitely a juggling act right now.
1: Yeah, it is. It is a juggling act. And it, it in my opinion, if we're not, Helping the people that are, you know, experiencing houselessness and veterans, the ones that are really struggling with debilitating mental health issues. What are we doing, right? You know, like those are the people that need it the most. And yet it is going to be currently, at least as the industry boots up, it's still pretty inaccessible for lower income people. But my hope is that as we continue to build more networks, as we continue to, maybe even get the Veterans Administration to pay for it. You know, that's a dream. That's a dream. The more and more veterans come online, what if the VA starts paying for it, at least for veterans that don't have any counter indicators for the treatment? Now, that's quite a statement. I'm sure a lot of people who are veterans who work with the VA would be like, oh, no, the VA will never do that. I want to stay in this hopeful place that more and more people that make decisions at the highest levels of our government will start to see that this is something that isn't just hippies wanting to spread free love. This has the potential to really help humanity heal, also provide humanity with a way to feel more connected, whether that be spiritually or just interpersonally, that this is something that helps us human better and I really feel that this is one of the things like I was saying before is giving me hope for the future
2: yeah yeah and you know there's no harm in in dreaming big (laughs) yeah yeah and like I said there's going to be a lot of advocacy to continue to evolve the organ regulation and the FDA trials are are in phase two right now and who knows what's what's gonna happen once those finish up and, and what sort of recommendations the FDA may make on the federal level, you know, in terms of psychedelics, the MDMA trials are ahead of the psilocybin trials and there's a tentative expectation or, or hope of re-regulation within the next year or two with MDMA as a potential option for PTSD. And then, you know, talks of a similar sort of thing potentially happening with psilocybin a few years down the line from that or a couple of years. So it's hard to put, know what kind of timeline exactly that's on, how that'll influence things on the federal level and then how that plays into things evolving here and and overall and how that may play into accessibility yeah definitely no harm in in dreaming big because there's a lot of things happening right now right now and while all eyes are kind of on organ as we roll this out to see how it plays out and how it goes and what happens and colorado is probably going to base a lot of their stuff on us yeah yeah just. So much, so much in play right now that it, there's a, a lot of potential that remains to be seen on how it all plays out.
1: And hope. And hope. Yeah. Well, Doug, can we um, know where we can contact you if folks are interested in having you facilitate a psilocybin session maybe later down the line when that is more developed in everything and you have your facility and everything? How can folks yeah. get in touch with you?
2: Yeah, so I've got a couple ways that you can get a hold of me. My my clinical practice website is acune- acuneuromodulation.com. And then we have for the psilocybin services, we have secured Portland And so there's a real bare bones website up there, but it does have contact information. You can send an email through that, or you can sign up for the email newsletter that you can receive updates as things continue to evolve. Like I mentioned earlier, we're jumping through the hoops for the service center licensure currently. So at the mercy of the Oregon Health Authority's timeline on getting everything set up there. But for those interested, like I said, you can go ahead and sign up for the the email list and get the updates that way.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me yeah. about this topic. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be really excited to both hear this on the podcast and then I'll be posting the video on our wild witches group so yeah i really appreciate it i'll be keeping up with you and your work and yeah Yeah. let's let's build a better world together
2: yeah absolutely thank you so much
0: Thank you so much to Dr. Doug Wingate for coming onto to this show to talk about this very relevant and important topic that will continue to be a theme for us to discuss in the podcast as well as in emerging industry in several states around the US as well as federally in Canada. Plus, this is a good reference episode to send to anyone who may be curious about psilocybin but not know how to approach it as Doug really gave us a comprehensive summary of what psilocybin does from the therapeutic perspective
1: yeah and as hopefully if we see federal legalization of psilocybin in the next few years with all the promise of its therapeutic use this episode will be a good touchstone for all your family on facebook who will be dming you to ask about microdosing (laughs) So I will continue to work on developing my dream for opening a psilocybin testing lab and spreading the gospel of mushrooms and how they can save the world. So rest assured, this will become another perennial topic for us here on the Science Witch Podcast.
0: Hell yeah. (laughs) And in the meantime, if you want to support our podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter, which is the main way we are financially able to support our project. Our Discord server has become one of the main ways we interface with our listeners. We just had a few more people join since our last episode, so welcome. Welcome. <laughs> thank you for coming aboard. Uh, I know it's still a little bit small and a little barren at the moment, but in due time, that will change, that will become more robust, and you guys, by joining, have already helped with that, so from the bottom of our hearts, thank you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If you do support us on Patreon at any level, we will give you access to our Patreon-exclusive Discord channels. Also, at our $1 tier, you'll gain access to extra bonus content, as well as our early release episodes, one day before they are put onto our main RSS feed. We just posted a new deity deep dive on Hecate in our Patreon, with much more on the way. Once we start featuring ads on our podcast, this will be the main way that you can have an ad-free experience. So if you don't like hearing ads, please consider coming to Patreon. It will be ad-free.
1: Right. And then at our $5 a month level, we have our sticker exchange, which is also a good excuse for me to continue to have a digital art practice along with get all my other digital artist friends involved. This past month, we featured Jesse's awesome mushroom-themed art for the sticker that I will be sending out along with our holiday cards. So if you happen to have missed a sticker that you want to get a hold of, we have them all available on our Etsy. We are also going to be stocking other products starting this year that feature our artist coven's creations, including tapestries. I'm going to be getting, I've already gotten tapestries printed of Freya from my sister-in-law Christiane, and I'm going to be getting some other tapestries printed of her artwork as well as mine. Finally, at the $10 a month level, you'll get access to our Science Witch Coven, which is our currently highest level of support, and that will give you access to my tarot and astrology practice, where I will read your tarot over Zoom and can give you some insight into your birth chart. I really love reading tarot. I wish I could do it full-time, but, you know. Oh, my
0: God. When I was over in Oregon and you did that tarot reading for me, that was a magical and scary moment. And, honestly, I would recommend it for everyone. People, y'all need a tarot reading from Angel.
1: Well, it's like I always say, you know, hate the cards, not the reader. I'm just the messenger that helps interpret the messages from the ambient consciousness of the universe that's reaching out for you. And I think that's one of the reasons why I always seem to give really good tarot readings. I mean, my last tarot reading with one of our Science Witch Coven was, like, spot on to a degree that I think both her and I were... (laughs) almost a little amazed by. So yeah, this is a good way for us to connect with the folks out there that are listening, that we get to be voices inside y'all's heads and then you get to actually meet us in person. I've really gotten to develop my tarot practice over this past year in part thanks to all the teaching and speaking gigs I've done to promote the podcast and I feel really affirmed every time I get to do a tarot reading for one of our science witch coven.
0: Hi, and also we are continuing to add more content on our YouTube page, including videos from the Trans Telethon, some extended content from some of our more visual episodes, like the puppetry episode, Mm -hmm. and captioned videos of short-form podcast series Who's in Bloom? The trans telethon is over three hours long, so right now we're working on getting everything subdivided into the tracks and have all the levels mixed just right. You know how it is. But yeah, point is, we got stuff coming.
1: Yes, and I'm learning Adobe Premiere so that we can put our best foot forward on YouTube and hopefully get to the point where we can actually monetize our YouTube. But, you know, again, <laughs> you know how that goes. Finally, for... Any of y'all who are in the local area to Salem, Portland, Oregon area, I am teaching a class on journaling at By Candlelight and Conjure in Salem, Oregon on December 30th, 2023, 2023. The cost of the class is $20 and you'll receive a 10% discount on any journal to use for your journaling practice available in the store. I will put a link in the show notes for anyone that is interested. Then, after the class, I will be sharing the recording and the presentation that I do over Patreon at our $1 a month level. So anyone out there who isn't local and that is interested in taking this class, you'll get access to it via Patreon, and then you'll have opportunity to ask me more questions via our Discord.
0: If you'd like to find us on the social medias, we are on Instagram and Facebook as the Science Witch Podcast, and you can still find us on Twitter as at ScienceWitchPod, and if you would like to check out the show notes and transcripts from this episode, please see our website at ScienceWitchPodcast.com. Finally, if you hate social media and still want to reach out, you can always email us at questions at ScienceWitchPodcast.com.
1: Until next time, live long and prosper.
0: And blessed be.